listening to the Take Back Podcast, where women of color creatives come together to inspire, empower, and encourage each other. I'm Jess Pillay, an Indo-Fijian independent singer-songwriter. And I'm Angelica Dianda, a Mexican-American licensed mental health counselor and singer. And this is the podcast where we explore and elevate stories from women of color who are artists, musicians, actors, entrepreneurs, and so on, who are navigating and taking back systems designed against them. Welcome back to the Take Back Podcast. I am Jess Pillay, one of your hosts, and I'm here with my best friend and co-host, Angelica Deanda. Hello. So today we get to do a deep dive into your story, which I'm really excited about, and we're going to talk all about your upbringing and what got you into the creative spaces that you have spent your time in and just who you are. All right. So Angelica is a Mexican-American licensed mental health counselor. She's also a wife and a mother and a singer. And so she's been involved with all kinds of different things in her career professionally, as well as just in volunteer work and community work that she's done. Um, She worked for a long time in community mental health Mm -hmm. and has done some amazing advocacy work, which we're going to be talking about. And one of my favorite things about you is the fact that you are a singer. We obviously met through our music connection, which we will talk about. And I've had the pleasure and the honor of having you sing, having your beautiful voice on some of my music projects. So I'm excited to learn more about your music journey and the things that led you to get involved with creativity as you were growing up. So for our listeners who are here, we're so glad you're here. Super excited that you decided to tune back in. And I cannot wait to interview my bestie today and give you all a bit of an insight into who she is and how she became this amazing woman that she is today. Okay, so I've known you for 16 years, and we met in college as music students at the university that we were attending. So we've talked on this podcast about my perspective. So let's talk about your perspective. So the thing I want to ask you is, we're in this room. It's 120, 130 people, whatever, in this chapel and both of us were freshmen we didn't really know anybody at that point you might have known people some people a little better than right. me because you're a lot more extroverted than I am well and I was living on campus that's so true know you at that time you were commuting this is correct and uh you just walked right up to me on that stage so <laughs> so tell me why did you walk right <laughs> up to me? What went through your mind? You know, so some backstory. When choir had started, because I think that was the second week of school, because the first week was spent doing auditions. If I can also, I'm, I'm digging deep in my memory here. So That like, is true. I forgot yes. we did auditions. We did auditions, which is mind-blowing, because I, I mean... <laughs> I mean, pretty much anyone that really wanted to be in the choir was able to join unless they were tone deaf. But even then, um, anyways, so I think the auditions was mostly for the choir director to kind of get a gauge of just like what people's vocal abilities were and then to, you know, place them where she thought vocally that they could be in. Like, right. Like, so like sopranos, altos, tenors. I last minute decided to audition 
audition, I believe. I can't remember. And then by the time I auditioned, found out that I got into the choir, I had yet had time to purchase the music. So the first day of class, mind you, we're already second week into school. Jess and I were already in a, I believe we were in a music, music theory. theory 101. Yep. So I recognized her in class, like as, as a classmate. And I think just from the get-go, I was like, I need music. I don't have music. I'm looking around and I'm like, okay, altos are supposed to go in this stand in this section. And I'm like, okay, who do I know that's an alto that I kind of know who has their sheet music in their hands? <laughs> oh, there's this chick in my music theory class. Oh, I'm just going to like just go and just ask for forgiveness and ask if I could just stand <laughs> and borrow her music. And that was it. I think, though, in retrospect, it was my first time ever away from home. And I grew up in a community where there was stark uh, differences racially. And so being Latina, I had grown up and was surrounded by brown community. So this was my first time away from home where I could probably at that time count with like less than maybe like my two hands brown people that were on campus. So I think subconsciously, I was just trying to find someone that I could feel like I could connect to. Mm. That either, even though may not look like me, but internally, I was like, this is a brown person. I'm brown. Maybe we can connect. But I don't think I connected that until like years, like 10 years later, as, as I started going through my own racial identity awakening. Mm -hmm. I don't even think I really thought about it until this very moment as you were talking about you being away from home for the first time, because for me, I was literally at home. Right. So another thing that I remember came up was the first several years that I knew you, I knew you as Angelica. Yes. That's how you introduced yourself. And now I know you as Angelica. So I know we're kind of jumping right in, but can you tell our listeners about that journey? How did you go from Angelica to Angelica and that shift that right. happened in you? Right. So kind of to work backward, growing up, I found my identity, basically one primary place, was being a Christian. Grew up in a Christian home. And then the second, which was like the sublayer identity, was culturally being a Latina. Well, there's um, layers of being a Latina that is white passing. And in a lot of communities of color, people are trying as hard as they can to get close to proximity of whiteness in order to get to where they want to go with their goals. So growing up as a white passing Latina, I often often heard lots of comments made about my whiteness and very blatant and like offhand comments. And for a long time, as far as I could remember, like in my conscious mind was I went by Angelica. Well, right around 2015-16, I was already about three or four years into my career as a mental health counselor I had taken a step back from being an active participant in the Christian church. And so there was a moment where I didn't have a sense of identity. I didn't know who I was. But a strange thing to go through at like almost 
30 years old. Like I was about 28, 29 years old. And so I pendulum swinged into trying to seek identity within my cultural roots. So I got heavily involved in trying to meet other first, second generation Latinos that were very big in advocacy work and focusing on la raza and like, you know, coming together and trying to rally around our community that um, we're dealing with a lot of variety of just injustices and hardships. And in that journey... I started to really go through the questioning process of who I was as an individual and who I was as a Latina. And I vividly remember I attended a conference through this educational group called Courageous Conversations about how to have challenging and difficult conversations about race and to not shy away from it. And I remember meeting this woman and she introduced herself and she's like, well, what's your name? And I was like, well, it's Angelica. Well, uh, it's Angelica, you know, I was like, you know what? Just whatever, whatever is easiest for you to say. And she looked at me and she's like, well, how do you prefer for your name to be said? And then I kind of brushed it aside. I'm like, ah, it doesn't matter. I was like, it's I, I don't care. I go by either or. And she just kind of like deadpan looked me straight in the eyes and said to me, no, it's important. What's your name? And I still was like, didn't know how to respond. And then came the big one, the big question. What does your mom call you? Mm. Oh, Mm. guttural punch. And I'm like, Angelica. And then she looked at me, she's like, then that's your name. And I sat and that brief, less than 10 second interaction kept playing through my mind the whole day and that night. And then, of course, I take it to my own therapy session with my therapist and I started really unpacking. When did that change? When did that shift happen? Why did that shift happen? I can't say I can put a finger of what the catalyst event was, but I could, I was able to narrow it down to a time and age frame. And it was probably around second or third grade. I just got tired of correcting people. Mm. And you think about that, like seven or eight years old and for a seven or eight year old to feel that exhausted, having to tell people, Hey, no, it's Angelica. My name's Angelica. It's just so sad. Like it it was really saddening. And then it was a layer of like coming to terms with that, grieving that, and then going through, well, what is my name and how am I going to go through moving forward? Yeah. Same, my name. Because I'm a firm believer that names are very, very important. Names have meaning behind them. And there was a reason my parents picked the name that they picked, right? And for me, because I'm white passing, I can easily, easily just be a white person. I can be Angelica. In fact, I made a very cautious decision when I got married not to take on my husband's last name. Hmm. Because in my mind, my last name was my one connecting piece to my culture. That someone could see my last name and they would be able to say, ah, she is not white. Hmm. But even, there was then that other layer of like, well, it's even more than just my last name. It's just my name. It's it's my That is who I am. So I started going through the process of reintroducing myself, 
to people that have known me and loved me all these years. Um, I remember in therapy, just even unpacking with my therapist and just like wrestling, like, oh my gosh, like, how am I going to tell my husband? How's my husband going to react? How are my friends going to react? And I am so blessed to have such a community of people that are so loving and caring and supportive and didn't even question and just lovingly were like, okay, you're on Hedika. As you were talking, I was thinking about a conversation I had with my mom fairly recently and talking about how often people of color try to cater to white audiences mm-hmm. and white spaces. So right. that that exhaustion that you felt, I mean, she felt that when she was picking my name and when she was picking my siblings' names. You know, it was just like, I guess I got to go with these Anglo-European white-sounding names because I am tired of people mispronouncing my name. Right. But also an element of, I don't want to make other people uncomfortable because I'm lucky to be here you know that's that's the posture that my parents certainly have taken and I feel like you know as your best friend being a person who's been in your life for a very long time I've watched this fire spark in you since you started to claim the name Angelica Mm -hmm. what got you to that point because you talked a little bit about that exhaustion that you felt Mm -hmm. right How did you go from these years of exhaustion or these years of trying to cater to these majority white audiences Mm -hmm. around you and just feeling like, I don't want to bother anybody, right? Right. It's often what we're, and we're kind of taught that as kids, like be the good kid, don't get in trouble. You know, there's there's a lot of things that we're taught. But then you got to this point, something obviously led you to that point of saying, I don't really care anymore. And this is my name, this is who I am, and I'm going to confidently start claiming it. Right. Tell us about that. You know, being a child, being a second-generation Latina, so the layers of that. So what that means is, you know, my parents, um, first-gens, which technically, if you want to get real technical, uh, mom's side of the family, they historically have been in the U.S. before Texas was a U.S. territory. So essentially, the border crossed them. Okay, Mm. so my mom's side of the family, for one part in particular, has always been the United States. And then with my dad's side of the family, he was born in the U.S., but but it wasn't a a classical like story that you often hear with Latinos where, you know, the the grandparents immigrated to the U.S., they stayed, had children. It's quite the opposite. My dad was born um, while his family for um, a short season of time came to the U.S. as migrant farm workers to make money because they were financially struggling back in Mexico. So my dad was born in the U.S. and right probably around like two or three months old, the family went back to Mexico and he grew up there. And then he re-immigrated, even though he was an American citizen, he re-immigrated back to the U.S. at 16 years old. So both of my parents... Um, Though technically the way that they were raised would be, you know, a lot of people would consider them more of traditional or very closely knitted to immigrants. They very much have like the first gen Chicano mindset, which if you look at Chicano history, those first gen kids back in the 50s, 60s and 70s were very active. They were activists. And so growing up, I saw my parents 
engage in civic and active um, activities to elevate and to support the Latino community. So that was like, I saw that at a, I'm talking at a very young age. And there was a season of time where my parents weren't as active. Like when you think of active, we're talking like marching and protesting and things, activities of that nature. Well, during, you know, elementary years and in high school years, my parents were still actively involved in the community, but it was in subtle ways. So there was a period of time where that was very, very dormant. That was, of course, right around the time where the exhaustion set in. And there, growing up, there was a lot of conversations just about even naturally day to day um, with my parents and, and the dinner table about um, speaking up for what is wrong and stepping in and knowing power and privilege. And in their own way, my parents were communicating to me that because I have lighter melanin, naturally, I'm already going to have privilege in any space that I go in because mm. people are just going to assume I'm white. And I vividly remember I was very young, probably also right around like elementary, maybe even like early middle school. I remember one day I was sitting with my mom and I was looking at her forearm and I was looking at my forearm and I put my arm next to her arm and just commenting about her melanin being a little bit darker complexion than mine. I'm like, why Why is it that I'm whiter and I don't look like you, mom? And, and I remember my mom saying, you know, God created you just the way that you are. It's not an accident. And then, of course, and here's the Christian upbringing, bringing in the biblical principles where she talked about, you know, Queen Esther. You know, God placed Esther in that situation in time. And he placed her for such a time as this. We don't know why you look the way that you do. But God created you for a reason, for a purpose. And you never know. You never know why. But maybe he created you to step in and to be an advocate or to step in and help in ways that you don't know. You know, and he created you for such a time as this. And I'm back and I'm like, mom, mom. <laughs> whatever. I just want time was brown, you know, all, all the things, right? Don't want to be different. But fast forward, same time around, it was once again around 2015, 2016, I think it was 2016. I was doing work and I was starting to get connected um, with other Latinos in the Seattle area that were doing community work. And I remember there was one evening where I was asked to go to this event to hand out mental health resources. And the event had to do with a community of Latinos and other individuals that were living in low-income housing that were being displaced because their homes were being bought out by developers. And basically the property was getting demolished and then was going to be flipped into multi-million dollar properties. So families had a lot of questions. So there was a bunch of advocacy groups that were coming together to create a basically a forum for these families to ask questions. So I'm like, sure, I'll go. I'll be there. It was a Friday night after work. And I remember being at the event and I could probably go on for hours about this. But long story short, I'm in this room, this crowded public school library. And I'm seeing these families, a bunch of families from all different walks of life, different nationalities. And there was a big chunk of Latino families there who were monolingual speakers, so did not speak English. 
And as they were talking, you know, there was a representative that came from the developers. And so we didn't know until she said her title. She was actually a housing relocation specialist that was hired by the developers to get those families and move them out. And I knew, because I could understand what was being said in English, that it was a bunch of bullshit. And I'm looking around the room and I see just the adults, the Latino adults, just like visibly upset. And we're looking at each other and I could understand what they were saying in Spanish about we don't want to leave and just going on and on about how upset they were. And in that moment, I remembered, I'm like, you know what? I was like, here I am. I come in here already coming in with privilege because I look white. But yet I am connected with my community and I can understand what them and I'm educated and I can speak both languages. I was like, how can I not do something? How could I not say something? This is not right. And I don't know. It's just that in that moment, something just like ignited within me. And that evening was the kickstart of that journey. Like I said, of the reawakening of who I am as a Latina. And I'm still on that journey now. Here we are like six, seven years later and I'm a different person. And I know that I'm a different person than when, when we first met and I'm even a different person than when I was back then. But yeah, it, It was just wild to know that that spark was always there. And really, I would say that event was likely the catalyst that reawakened and sparked that, like for me coming back to who I am. Well, and I love that connection that you talked about with your parents being activists and being really committed to the Latino community Mm -hmm. and trying to help people get their voice, essentially. And how this many years later, that influence is still right. very present in your life and has played out in how you've it's, navigated the world. You know, I talk about this and I've processed a lot with my with my husband. It's like, that is like my legacy. Like that is, if I think about it, like that is the legacy that my parents have given me. Like, I think of a lot of people when they think of legacy, they think of, oh, you know, my parents are going to leave me an inheritance. Well, right. yeah, great. That's awesome. Yes. If you can leave me some money, it's awesome. But the reality <laughs> is, like, legacy and inheritance is so much more. And that is a legacy and the inheritance that my parents left me was just knowing who you are and the power of standing up for injustice, standing up for things that aren't right, and to not back down and to not give up. I mean, I've seen that and it's just incredible just to see where they've come and just the way that their actions and the way that they chose to speak up, the reach and the influence that they've had. So, like I said, it's just me just kind of riding on, you know, their legacy and then hopefully passing that on down to, you know, my family. Yeah, I love it. That's so good. So... I'm sitting here and I'm actually kind of wondering this now, even though I've known you for so long. But, you know, when we first met, you were very much on a different path. Mm -hmm. And you came into college as a music major. And unlike me, who dropped out of the music program halfway through, you actually finished your music degree. I did. So 
One of the things that I'm really curious to know about, what sort of creative projects, music projects, things like that were you involved with growing up? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So growing up, I come from a very creative family. <laughs> Not musically inclined, but creative. So, I mean, God bless my parents. Um, My mom loves to sing. And she actually, I think, has a lovely voice. And if she would have had the resources to have gotten training, I think she would be just, her vocal abilities would just be phenomenal. But naturally, just her God-given talents, she's great. And so I grew up hearing my mom singing a lot. Uh, My dad, oh, God bless his heart. He's tone deaf. He cannot carry a tune. <laughs> I mean, oh, <laughs> and, but, but, you know, I, I love him and it's, it's just great to see him try. And some other creative projects that I engaged in growing up was I would plan my birthday parties. I did that too. <laughs> <laughs> like to the point where I knew absolutely exactly what I wanted from start to finish and I would tell my parents so I was recently talking about this with my mom and so she was saying that I think it was like my fourth or fifth birthday I was out of it I knew that I wanted a McDonald's birthday party at the McDonald's like playland and down to the detail of what I was going to wear and telling all my friends what outfits they were going to wear to the party (laughs) yeah there was a one year I think I can't remember how old I was was in elementary school probably maybe like eight or nine years old I had a whole medieval theme birthday party nice and so we made the stuff so we had like um <laughs> like big tall like pointy hats with like ribbons like flowing uh-huh. and <laughs> we made like shields and swords and uh for a piñata we had a whole dragon piñata and the piano was the dragon head nice. it was like this whole thing so um it was always like a family affair right so whatever uh like creative project I had either I was doing that with like a sibling or I was doing that with my family but it's just like some fun stuff which now you know growing up I see those traits coming out as an adult which I know you know this for my wedding I planned that and executed it from start to finish yeah all myself like sure did. I had the idea I knew what I wanted I wanted I need the theme and the feel I still can't even believe I d- pulled it off but I did Um, well I remember the months leading up to your wedding and I'd be talking to you you know mostly every day at that point and it's like what are you doing tonight oh I have this craft I need to get so many crafts all these decorations (laughs) like you literally made it all I did and it actually and I I had it good well thank you and in fact I up until like literally a month ago I still had stuff in storage from the wedding which (laughs) I've this year I'm going to be celebrating my 10 year anniversary with my husband yay Yay, I know (laughs) big milestone but I was like damn I was like planning like a wedding for like five or six hundred yeah i mean total latino fashion you got to be prepared for whomever shows up to the party yeah but you know from a very early age my parents saw that there was this creativity in me and they noticed it by the way that i learned i'm very much they connected the piece i was an auditory learner where Mm. for example they were trying to teach me things like colors and so my dad would point at something and be the color red, for example. And he's like, what's, you know, and he'd go, what, what color is that? And I'd be like, apple. <laughs> and, he, and he was like, no, it's red. Okay. So then he'd put us in like, okay, what color is this? And it'd be green. And then I would look at it and be like, grass. So I would make associations, <laughs> but I could remember things. And they noticed 
I could recall songs. So they would start making up random songs, just like random things to get me to like learn things. And that's how I started to learn. The thing with my parents is that they really wanted me to have access to things that they didn't have as kids. Mm. So they had me in like all the sports. So I don't like sports. (laughs) Do not like it. Me neither. I mean, I have like a story (laughs) they could talk about, like how vividly, how much I hate sports. You know, in school, I struggled and they started noticing too. once again, going back to the music, I was a hooked on phonics kids. Okay. Yes, everyone hooked on phonics literally worked for me. So <laughs> like they not they, a sponsor, not a sponsored <laughs> thing. I'm just I'm just a story of a kid back in the 90s that that worked. But um, I was struggling with reading and my mom was so desperate to try to a way to like get me to succeed. And so she got hooked on phonics and it worked. My mom very quickly made the connection. It was because everything was in song. Everything was like phonetic. It was just a different way for kids to learn. So creative projects were just like little things like doing crafts at home and giving access to like crafting tools. I did a lot of plays through the church, a lot of stuff through church. And then around um, sixth grade, I joined band in school. My parents put me in piano lessons and that's where like the music stuff really started to come out more and more. I did piano from sixth grade all the way up to my final year in college. And then singing, I only did singing through church. So it was just like random, like kid choir and occasionally, you know, doing like the Easter performance. It was probably like around high school, like any kid growing up in the church, they want to be a part of the worship band. Right. That <laughs> you was know? what the cool kids I in know. church did. All the cool right? kids did that. So I started doing that and wasn't the kid that anyone wanted to be, have be like the worship leader. It was just like was one of the background vocals, which was mm. whatever. That was fine. But it wasn't until like I would say like the big, the big, the big creative project was in high school I now at the time I was in band I was in the wind ensemble played the clarinet and I did not know that yes I did That's, there you go I learned something new I played clarinet from sixth it. grade to 12th grade yes I did second chair there, there was like a whole thing between another student <laughs> I like always competing for first chair never would get I would always fall so short but and then I did a jazz band on the piano oh my gosh I'm just like I don't even know how I did it <laughs> like but I, I did that for a long time and and I remember um there was a drama production and I went to go watch it and I was like oh that would be so fun to like act and um, that was my sophomore year and then junior year they announced that they were going to put on a musical and it was Little Shop of Horrors mm. and I was like what is this and rented the movie oh my word <laughs> and just was like fascinated and decided I was going to try out no I didn't know didn't know all like the drama within the drama club club and the drama within like the music theater and so because my school you know rural eastern oregon we weren't like fancy enough to be like a glee right where we had a glee club or like (laughs) music theater group or anything like that but so it was the theater kids and like the choir kids and mind you i was not in any of those like i'm here i'm just like a little little band kid but (laughs) so here i was wanting to try out 
And I remember there was this one girl in particular. She was the, like, she was the drama, like, vocal singer, the creme de la creme. And everyone was like, she is going to get the lead. She's going to be Audrey. Hands down, that's it. And I was just like, I went, I was like, I just want to have fun. And I just want to, like, do something different. So I go, and part of the audition, like, was, yeah, you had to, like, recite a monologue and then do some singing and then they did callbacks and I remember at the beginning of winter break we had the first audition and then they had callbacks so I knew that I had made the callback and then we had two weeks of winter break so I ran to the blockbuster <laughs> this is like AGV and I rented Little Shop of Horrors and I watched that film like here's hyper focus guys I watched that film like on repeat, and I memorized all the songs and figured out parts. And I went back to the callback, and they were just like, "Okay, we want girls, you know, uh, you know, for parts of Audrey, we want people to sing this this part of the song." And I was like, "Done. Had it already memorized because I watched that film." <laughs> you were and ready. I, I was ready, but like I didn't. I was like, "Well, you know, I'm I'm thinking I'm okay," but I didn't realize until that callback I was like. Oh, they actually think that I'm a decent singer, and I never I'm thought, you know, I sang okay. And I did the callback and I sang the song. And I remember, so the choir director was the person that was going to be in charge of all the music. And she came and she's like, Why aren't you in choir? Hmm. And I was like, Oh, you know, I'm just a man. And then the upset happened. The casting sheet went up. We all go up there to see who got listed. And where's Angelica's name? Oh, no. Was she back on course? Nope. Was she? Oh, no. Audrey. I got Audrey, guys. I was Audrey. Never had been in musical theater. Never had been drama. And I got cast as Audrey. And it was like, I was shocked. Um, There was a lot of pissed off people. <laughs> and man, what, what a season, too. I learned so much of that experience. I learned... So many lessons that I've still have carried over to adulthood. I learned in that moment going through that. I was like, I was a people pleaser and I had to learn how to not please people. Mm. I had to learn to get over myself and just be comfortable with who I was, no matter what people thought of me. Because once again, remember, I was this nobody that then landed the lead. And my family and I still talk about it to this day. Like, that kind of catapulted me going into, wow, I actually can carry a tune. And in my senior year, I moved away from being a musician in the jazz ensemble and in the concert band. And I went 110% in doing all things with choir. So I joined the jazz choir, which was a very small select group of about, I want to say about 10 to 15 singers and I ruffled even some more feathers of joining that <laughs> choir because there was a process and a hierarchy of even to land in that choir where um, folks had to show and demonstrate their singing abil abilities for several years so here I was just kind of came in out of nowhere and I took something that I wanted and you took back the I system. took back the system, guys. <laughs> Not knowing I was taking back the system all those years ago. But that's what really led into going into college and university was like, you know, I really enjoy this. I really like music. I've always liked music. I just didn't know that 
you know, I could carry a tune. I, I didn't have the brown parents who were like, we want you to be a doctor. We want you to be an accountant. We want you to be a lawyer. My parents were like, we just want you to go to school and we want you to just get a degree. Yeah. So you can study whatever you want as long as you get a degree. We don't care. So I'm like, great. I want to study music. I like it. I do good in it. I'm going to do that. And I did that. And I got my undergrad in music. And yeah. Now I'm going to ask, what was the original question? Because now I'm just like going on. <laughs> well, I just wanted to know kind of what led you to that that path sure. of music. Um, and I, I'm going to tell a story or maybe prompt you to tell a story. But when we were in college, I remember I would work my ass off practicing piano and always feeling incredibly <laughs> mediocre about it. And then this girl goes into lessons every week and just sight reads her way through her oh, lesson. God. And she's like calling me up, asking to hang out and, oh, let's go do something. No, I have to get four hours of piano practice and I don't have time to hang out because I have a bunch of other homework. And I'm like, did you practice? Oh, no, I'll just sight read. <laughs> yeah. So it blows my mind that you're the one. Who got the music degree and I, I ended know. up dropping out of I it. know. However, I, I'll just say this. I'm going to call myself out. You had the piano teacher that I know that I would not have gotten away with that. I mm. think that I, I knew my abilities and I knew my lack of abilities. And so, <laughs> so, um, but, you know, that was a testament of even just what my experience was even in jazz choir and mm -hmm. learning music. I got really good at sight reading and I would practice too and I just... I was just okay. <laughs> I was just okay. And I just knew I was like, I could get stressed out about this or I just go in and do the best that I can. And it is what it is. So so for any kids out there, I don't think we have kid listeners, but in case we do, the moral of the story is practice your instrument. Yes, practice your instrument. <laughs> don't do not be, be like, like an Ange. Don't be like Angelica. <laughs> be like a Jess. I love it. That's great. <laughs> Well, thank you, Angelica, so much for just sharing this part of your story. I think we'll probably hit pause for now and continue this in our second part two episode about you. Um, so to all of our listeners out there, thank you so much for being here. We're so glad that you are choosing to check out this podcast. There are literally so many podcasts out there. And the fact that you are choosing to spend your time with us means a lot. We are really grateful to have your support. So if you would do us a huge favor, wherever it is that you're listening to this podcast, whether it's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever it is that you get your podcasts, we would really appreciate it if you would consider rating it so that we can kind of work that algorithm that we have to think about and, um, you know, help get the word out about this show. We're still brand new, so we would love to have your support in letting other people know that we exist and that we have some amazing stories coming up so you can Give us a review. A five-star review would be phenomenal. And let us know in your comments what it is that you're liking about the show so far. What are the parts of our stories that are resonating with you? We would really love to know that. And then you can also check us out on our website, which is thetakebackpodcast.com. There's a sign up for our mailing list there that you can do, which will allow us to send you information about new episodes whenever they're dropped, as well as any upcoming events or other things that we might have coming up in the future. 
where we really do want to build this into a community like we've talked about. And so the more people we can get into our network, the better. So please go ahead and subscribe there and then check us out on social media. At the moment, we mostly have our Instagram, which is at the Take Back Podcast. And you can like and follow and share any of our posts that we have there and just kind of let us know what you like about that space and help us get active and um, engaged that way. And then lastly, if you're a woman of color creative, if you are an actor, a musician, a writer, um, whatever your craft might be, we want to have you on our show. So go ahead and drop us either an email or use our contact page on our website or even just shoot us a DM on Instagram. We would absolutely love to hear from you and hopefully have you as a featured guest on our show. So yeah, check us out. And again, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Angelica, for being here today. Aww. And joining me and we look forward to seeing all of you next time want to be a creative revolutionary with us visit the takebackpodcast.com to learn more